All right. Since I'm notorious for having the reputation of going overtime, I'm going to maximize every single minute I get. So we're going to start a few minutes early. And for those who are walking in late, well, I'm just sorry. Um, I'm also going to apologize. Hope I don't seem less authoritative by not wearing a jacket. But it's getting to be late in the day, and it's a long day. And I still have a couple of things to go. So thank you all for coming. And my name is David Glick. I am a, I don't know, I guess a pain doc, right? I've been in practice for, let's say, 30 years or so. but um, what I wanted to do for you with this session here at Pain Week today is I want to talk about something that we see every day because it falls along the lines of giving you practical clinical applications for things that you might be able to take back to your practice and, and help your patients. Just dealing with neck and upper extremity pain as a concept is something we can probably spend a whole meeting on, but I wanted to sort of give you a perspective of just changing the way maybe we look at some of these patients because that might give us all the information we need to do something different. So that's what this presentation is sort of targeted to. Um, officially, I have nothing to disclose. We have several course objectives. We'll keep it simple. We want to be able to identify some of those things that cause pain, right? Primary and secondary pain generators. But we also want to be able to look at some of the problems that we have in being able to diagnose these. Because if there's one soapbox I have for almost everything that I present at Pain Week, it's that I really don't like the, the concept of pain management. I like the idea of pain treatment. Because our goal is really not to manage a problem. It's to treat a problem. If for some reason we can't treat it effectively, then we want to sort of mitigate or decrease the level of severity and make it easier to manage. But in reality, our goal is not management, it's treatment. So we want to look at some strategies we have for being able to change that, basically. So these misconceptions about pain. We played a little game a number of years ago where we basically did, I think it was Family Feud was the game, and we said, okay, tell me what you think the causes are for neck pain. And we did it for back pain, too. Survey said number one answer was, by the way, this is interactive, right? So if I ask a question, you guys are supposed to answer back. And here's a couple of pain week suggestions, by the way, off the record. And I think I mentioned this last night to a couple of people. If Dr. Argoff ever asks you a question in any of his sessions, the answer is always the lesser obvious one. But if I ask you a question, it's always the obvious answer. So. Basically, disc herniations, right? Everyone said herniated discs. Well, the problem is that all pain is not caused by herniated discs, and there really is no single cause of neck pain. And likewise, there is no single treatment for pain because it can be caused by all sorts of different things. Make sense? So here's my controversial statement, and I apologize if it offends anybody, but I would argue that chronic neck pain often occurs from a failure to adequately differentially diagnose and treat the pathology. How else can you account for a patient that might have been in pain for years, they come into the office, we take a step backwards, we frame it in a new light, come up with a new game plan, and then all of a sudden, we might resolve it, or at least lessen the severity, make it easier to manage. We didn't do anything different. We didn't invent a new test, a new treatment. We're working with what already exists. The question is, how do you refine that? Well, the problem is every single one of you in the room is highly skilled, well-rounded clinicians, physicians, right? We are all well-trained in what we do. The problem is we don't all do everything, and I don't claim to be able to treat everything myself. What I think or what I like to consider myself as is a triage guy. I know a lot about a bunch of different things or a little bit about a bunch of different things, and if I can better determine what patient needs what treatment at what time to better their outcome, 
that's a highly patient-centered approach, but I think that's what makes me who I am. So I don't claim to be able to treat everything. I just sort of get in the middle and try and figure out where the patient needs to go. And if it's something I can do, I'll do it. If it's something I can't, I don't. So it's all about triaging. Well, remember that little kid's toy with the square pegs and the round pegs and the trapezoid pegs? Well, the problem is some of us are trapezoid clinicians, right? Some of us are square physicians. Some of us are cylinders. Well, if you stick a square patient with a square clinician, what do you think the outcome is going to be? Perfect. What if the clinician is square but the patient is round? Well, that's never going to work. And then what happens, because all too often our patients have complicated issues, right? Who says the problem has to be square alone? What if it's half square and half round? Well, then you've got to find a clinician that's either half square and half round or an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team where you have someone who's square and round that can work together. So if there's one takeaway, again, from my soapbox, is the most important tools we have in our armamentarium is the history, the clinical examination, and the experience of the clinician. So what happens? The patient comes in and tells you a story. Based on this story, you are then sort of developing some ideas in the back of your mind what can rule in or rule out what you think is really counting for the patient's symptoms, right? And then based on your experience as a clinician, you apply this medical decision-making process, and then you determine what that patient needs for treatment. Okay, full disclosure. As a clinician in practice, I had the reputation for having some of the most thorough hands-on examinations on the planet. Well, that takes time. So like a post-op low back pain patient or a post-op neck pain patient, cervical patient, might be three or four hours face-to-face. So yeah, I got really good detailed thorough exams in history. Not practical in a usual setting though, is it? So I'm not necessarily in the real world from that perspective. But when I sort of gave up the idea of clinical practice and started migrating to telemedicine, which I do now too, which is the only thing I'm willing to do at this point as a matter of fact, I was worried that I would lose who I am and sort of miss my mojo. Well, it turns out that when you have the experience of seeing everybody's train wrecks or the difficult chronic and complex cases that sort of fell through the cracks, you still get good at recognizing them. And then I have this little ability because I've really honed my history taking. Who in this room thinks patients volunteer all of the information necessary to get a good history? No one's going to raise their hand. So what we have to do is be skilled interrogators. I had to take one of the slides out of this deck on a previous occasion because somebody was offended by the fact that I showed somebody being interrogated under a bright light because you have to sometimes apply one shot sort of short of waterboarding in order to get the information out of your patients, right? So it turns out that when you start extracting all this information and paying closer you know, closer attention to the patient's history and everything that happened up to that point, you'd be surprised what you can pull out of a telemedicine examiner, you know, telemedicine consult. And then when you add in the ability of someone else to use somebody else's hands, like a family member or a spouse, or my favorite telemedicine consults, or when you guys call me up with that complicated patient and we're talking while the patient's there, because then we can go to a, a whole nother level as well. So it turns out that if you look at the way many patients are being treated today, because you send the patient, let's say, to a specialist because you think they're going to do the examination that you necessarily weren't able to get to, well, it turns out they're not doing it either. So what you have from the standpoint of treatment is this process by which you're throwing darts at the patient, hoping something's going to stick. What does that do for outcomes? 
kind of shoots them off to the side, right? So the position that I take is if we can take a few more minutes and then hone in on what we're thinking about and come up with sort of the bullseye of what we think is causing this patient's problem at this particular time, in this instance, then we can determine which treatment would be best served for that patient, what they need. Do they need the square block, you know, if you want to use tools as an analogy? Do they need the Phillips screwdriver, the straight screwdriver, the vice grips or the hammer? Because otherwise, every, it seems like everyone's just throwing everything out there just to see what sticks. The problem is, what does that take? Time. Time. What do we have the least of? I was, spent the last hour and a half before this session listening to Dr. Zakharov. I was becoming depressed. But we all have this problem with time, especially with other things that we have to do. So I've been in practice since 1990. I've never gotten a raise since 1990 based on the CPT codes that I bill for for services. As a matter of fact, many of them were billing at 10%, were paying now 10% of what they were in 1990. My overhead hasn't gone down 90%, has it? So you're looking at having to spend less time with patients just to keep the lights on. So then we start relying upon other things like imaging studies to give us information that we're then making clinical decisions on that are taking the place of having to spend time with the patient. Patients also sometimes devalue the component of what you bring to the table, which is your clinical expertise. So some, how often do you think patients are going to spend more time or give more confidence in an MRI or an X-ray finding than your own exam? We see that too, don't we? The problem is... No one ever validated the imaging study's ability to identify a pathology that's clinically significant. Well, that's a problem. And latest news off the press, for those of you who have not heard this one yet, beginning January 1st, 2020, guess what CMS is doing for imaging studies? They're implementing a new decision point structure so that you have to now will follow these guidelines and, and have this evidence as to why you're going to be ordering the imaging study or they're not going to approve it, which means you're going to have to fall back into the examination anyway. It is going to be a circus. So if you think it's been hard to get imaging studies approved recently, wait till January 2020 when everybody starts figuring out what the heck's going on. Hmm. Somebody asked me to do a, a put together a, a kind of an informative lecture about it, and I don't even know how it's going to pound out yet, so I'm just going to wait and see like everybody else. So here's our issue. Let's start with this one. So what this author did is they took 497 asymptomatic, this is a Matsumoto study, asymptomatic individuals and did cervical MRIs. So the data showed that 70% male, 12% females in their 20s had disc pathologies or degenerative disc disease. 86 to 89, 86 and 89% respectively for male and females over 60 had degenerative disc disease and disc pathologies. So wait a second, in an asymptomatic population, you had between 12 and 90% presence of cervical degenerative disc disease and disc pathologies. So then how do you know if you see it on imaging studies that it is? A symptomatic pathology. You don't. That's what it's called the exam. We don't make clinical decisions on imaging studies alone. We use them to supplement our decision-making process. But the system's been corrupted, and everybody's making decisions based on the imaging study, which is leading to red herring diagnoses and a lot of failed treatments, including surgery. And if you don't think it's not possible to have an adverse event on the operating table and die during a surgical procedure that was unnecessary, what did that do? Not sure. But here's the thing that I like the most. 7.6% of the subjects over 50 were identified as having, I left the word severe out of it, but severe cord compression. 
So 8% of the population that they identified that were asymptomatic were said to have severe spinal stenosis necessitating decompressive surgery. Show of hands. Who's going to do a decompressive surgery in the cervical spine for an asymptomatic patient just because you see it on imaging study? Crickets. I'm not either. But look at the, the difference, and that's a pretty significant number, isn't it, for a pretty severe pathology that all the surgeons agreed should be decompressed. That's kind of wacky. All right. So what are the causes of neck and upper extremity pain? Well, they go the whole distance, don't they? So you can have myelopathic problems. You can have radicular problems, plexopathies, peripheral entrapments, peripheral neuropathies, a whole variety of neuromuscular disorders. You can have problems with, excuse me, joints anywhere in the neck. So you can have facet joint issues. Excuse me, you can have problems in the shoulder, the elbow, the wrist digits orthopedic standpoint. You can have the typical problems in the tendons. So we can have tendinopathies, tendinitis, sprains, strains. There's a, a variety of muscle injuries that are in there too, aren't there? Including something as simple as strains. We haven't even touched upon vascular and autonomic issues, but that's also possible and it has to be in your differential diagnosis. I had one of those the other day. I did a telemedicine consult on the guy's being treated for neck and upper extremity pain. Well, some neck and upper extremities, mostly upper extremities, some neck pain. And I'm looking at the guy and just his whole hand is like, I don't know, cyanotic. <laughs> There's no pulse there too much either. So he's got some issues going on, but he's got a vascular occlusion in his upper extremity, but he's being treated for a neurogenic pain that was completely misdiagnosed. So we got him referred to a, a vascular surgeon. But it's possible, so then how do we get through this to figure out what's going on on our patient? So what I wanted to do is I wanted to throw a couple of cases out at you because this is kind of what I do. But I wanted to take a couple of cases typical of the patient that you see in your office. Fair enough? So tell me if you haven't seen this patient before. So this patient is having right-sided neck pain, suboccipital headaches, had a history of numbness and tingling into the third and fifth digits that is for the most part resolved, but still symptomatic when the pain is at its worst. Okay? I'll even tell you the original injury. The original injury was he was shoveling snow, slipped, fell backwards, landing on his back, and hit his head on the curb. He just landed flat on his backside. Three years ago. So this has been going on for a while. So they do an MRI because he hit his head. They do an MRI in the ER as well as so it was MRI of the neck and head. Make sense? We've seen that. So the MRI identified minimal degenerative disc disease C3 through C6 without evidence of canal or foraminal stenosis. Okay? Reasonable finding? Let's tease this apart right away. Yes, the guy has cervical degenerative disc disease that's relatively mild. And actually, to be honest, considering his age, it is relatively mild. Who here wants to say that that degenerative disc disease had something to do with his fall or was a result of his fall? The timeline doesn't work, does it? How long did that degenerative disc disease take to set in? Years. But what do you think they do as soon as they see the MRI report that identifies cervical degenerative disc disease? Everyone starts treating that. But that's the red herring, isn't it? So his treatments included exercise, uh, well, PT, which was largely exercise, heat, and massage. I'm not going to say anything critical about that. Trigger point injections, because he's complaining of shoulder pain, and he's got some trapezius muscle spasms. Then he went through a series of epidurals. Well, they did both transforaminal and interlaminars, all focusing on that C3 through C6 disc pathology, right? Um, let's see. Then they did facet injections. So here's a cool thing. We've heard a lot of interventional pain, and if there's any interventionalists in the room, I'm sorry if I'm about to insult you. But... 
So he had a series of facet injections which turned out to be medial branch blocks. All right? So a medial branch block has a diagnostic component, right? You're injecting an anesthetic because you want to see if it sort of mitigates the perception of the patient's pain. Will the patient say that he felt better if you sedated them before the block? Yes. You can sedate the patient and inject their great toe and then come up with a positive outcome for that medial branch block, right? So that would be a problem, but that's what was done. And since the RF, the, the medial branch blocks were shown to provide some mitigation to his pain, they did a radiofrequency ablation, which didn't seem to help long-term. So basically, over the course of three years, this patient's gone through a couple of courses of physical therapy, six injections, including an ablation, and he's still sitting there no different than he was the day he started. What is the distribution of his symptoms, pain-wise, into the hand alone? What would you say, just think dermatomes. What was the dermatome that you think is most? C7, C8. C7, C8. What levels are not showing affected on the disc pathologies? Make sense? So do we read the imaging study or do we read the patient? And I think that's the key. We read the patient. So does this sound like a patient that you've seen in your office? Yeah, of course. We see the same patient every day. So everything the patient had for treatment was focused towards the C3 through C6 levels and the, you know, the trigger point into the trapezius. I think he had like 12 trigger, trapezius trigger points. That's a little bit of a stretch, but all without any long-term benefit. So here's his treatment. So here's my clinical exam on this patient. He had tenderness along the nuchal line at the base of the head. So we're talking the attachment sites for the trapezius, semispinalis capitis, and splenius capitis muscles. He had hypertonicity or spasm in the trapezius muscle, which we'll give him, with mild elevation of the shoulder. When I palpated his C3, C4 facet joint on the cervical spine, he lit up like a Christmas tree. How many of you palpate the cervical spine? Not enough hands. All right, we're going to do a little exercise here. Everybody take your fingers and put them like this. So what you want to do is find the middle of your neck, which is your spinous process, right? Your lateral process is over here. In the sulcus in the middle is where you're going to be palpating over the multifidus muscles and the facet joints, and you can spread your fingers apart. How many of you can feel a little nodule someplace when you're palpating like that? Probably about half of you, right? How many are going to push on that and watch it hurt? Congratulations, you have a little bit of multifidus muscle spasm. And if you can find one little spot there where you can push in that and really make it hurt, you probably have a little facet irritation too. But you can palpate that. And if you want to see what the difference is, switch around and palpate the other side and see what it feels like. So palpation over the C3, C4 facet joint suggested a mild inflammation of the facet joint. He had a pain on palpation of the right second costal vertebral joint. I can't, I can't walk in front of the projectors anymore now that the projectors are in front of us instead of behind us. So, okay, the ribs are a U-shaped bone, right? They have an attachment at the sternum, and they also come around and attach at the spine, and they have two attachments at the spine. The head of the rib articulates with the vertebral body, or the area around the vertebral body and the disc, and then it also articulates with the lateral process. So let's think about this. The ribs move every time you breathe, don't they? They're like little bucket handles. You inhale, they go up. We have muscles that attach to ribs, don't they? Like pec minor, pec major, serratus anterior, those kind of things all attach. So it's theoretically possible that while you're shoveling or you're using your hand as a lever and you're breathing the wrong way, that maybe you tugged on the rib at just the wrong time and it messes up the articulation. Subluxate it, to use a word if you'd like. 
But now, because the body senses something that's irritated, multifidus muscles and intercostal muscles go into spasm to protect it, say something's wrong, now it becomes self-perpetuating. So when you press over his right second costovertebral joint right about here, you can light him up like a Christmas tree. And then when you push anywhere along the line, along the line of the second rib, you can do the same. So he had a second rib arthropathy. And then the rest of the exam seemed pretty normal with respect to cervical range of motion, phalans, adsens, right stenels, cervical compression, jacksonic compression, cervical distraction studies. Everything was relatively mild. So what does this tell me? So that's the fun part. So these are the areas that were identified when you ask the patient, where does it hurt? This is what the patient points to. Can everybody see that? So what's here? Where's that? The base of his head. What did I find in my exam? Something at the base of the head. Where else is he pushing? Kind of at the base of his neck and shoulder. Remember that C8 nerve root that we were talking about for a possible C8 problem? Well, remember, C8 comes out between C7 and T1. T1 comes out between T1 and T2, which kind of is about the level of that second rib arthropathy, too. Okay. So now... If you think about this, we're changing the differential diagnosis a little bit, but it's mimicking what the patient said, and I think that's the important part. Everything the patient had done up to this point was a generic DART or went by an imaging study that had nothing to do with the patient complaints or the distribution, you know, that included the distribution of where his complaints were. So what do we have for a working clinical diagnosis now? Well, I revised the clinical diagnosis, so we start with the diagnosis of headaches. Clearly, a cervicogenic musculoskeletal headache makes sense, right? We have a couple different variations to the theme for differential diagnosis, though, don't we? I've heard a couple of speakers already, and we've only had pain week open for a day. And I've heard some talk about greater occipital nerve for an occipital neuralgia. What is the pattern that you see for a headache when that nerve is involved, though? It does what? Radiate around? Ah, did the patient complain of that? No. So it is plausible that there's still some involvement of the greater occipital nerve, but just not high in my scale because everything is local. So to me, that's part of the diagnosis. He had a second rib arthropathy. We've seen it called by many a different name, but I call it a rib arthropathy, so that's something we can deal with. And he had a facet, C3, C4 facet irritation going on as well. So, but now let's put some more of the pieces together. So if the, if the costal vertebral joint's inflamed, you're going to be irritating the fascia underneath the subscapularis. I know that one all too well, unfortunately. So what happens is a lot of times you're going to get muscle guarding in the shoulder region that are going to kind of want to lift the scapula up to keep it off the back of the rib cage. Well, that can contribute to trapezius muscle spasm that's constant as a protection mechanism. The other thing that can do it is what's nerve innervation to the, to the trapezius? Spinal accessory nerve. But it also has a strong spinal component, C3, C4, C4, C5, which is the C4 and roots, right? What level is the facet on that? C3, C4. All right, I'm going to give you access to something in the back of my mind that I get yelled at for not publishing, but we've all heard the term referred pain, right? When you have facet mediated pain being referred, we've seen that a lot. All right, I do this electrodiagnostic study called a somatosensory evoked potential study. So we can directly evaluate the nerve from your fingertips all the way to the brain and look at the entire neural pathway. But if you do a comparative study, so you're comparing one nerve to the other and you're getting more of a patient normal within the broad range of a population normal, you can identify mild or subclinical neuropathies in a very reliably manner and localize it to a particular nerve root without a problem. So without fail, 
I can take these patients that have a mild facet irritation and find out that there's a radicular component, so it's not that it's a referred pain, you're actually inflaming the nerve root, which then causes facilitation of that nerve and pain that radiates to that distribution. So if the nerve is getting excited because the facet joint's irritated, what do you think the muscle thinks it's being told to do? Contract, because it's increased nerve activity. So that's putting itself into the picture. So what a muscle does is it moves a joint, right? So a muscle, it crosses a joint, and you have an origin and an insertion. Where that origin and insertion is, where it attaches to the bone, is called an enthesis. So if that muscle is constantly pulling, doesn't it make sense that the enthesis could become irritated and cause an enthesitis? Of course. What are the two most common enthesitis diagnoses that we see? How about lateral and medial epicondylitis? Tennis and golfer's elbow, right? Can that occur at the base of your head? Because you have the trapezius muscle, whether it's in spasm because it's guarding the shoulder region, or because the nerve that goes to the trapezius is being irritated, causing the trapezius to be hypertonic? Yeah. Could that then cause a musculoskeletal sort of subluxal headache? Absolutely. So here's our revised treatment plan for this patient. And I should add, I guess I left off the medications, and they should have been there because he's on uh, uh, an anti-epileptic, um, an opioid, and an antidepressant. Long-term management for chronic neuropathic pain, which is what he was diagnosed with. We started weaning him off his medications right away for the neuropathic pain and for the, um, an- the, um, you know, the uh, antidepressant. But we did an intraarticular injection into the C3, C4 facet joint because of the facet inflammation. I've heard someone this morning talk about we don't do intraarticular injections anymore. We just do medial branches. We're going to talk about why that is a problem sometimes. And then we manipulated the rib back into place, just manipulated it. You can, some people call it an adjustment. Some people call it a mobilization. Whatever you'd like, it doesn't really matter. We just manipulated it back into place. Very simple, easy to do. And then we gave him a topical NSAID, which is off-label because topical diclofenic is what? Indicated for osteoarthritis in the knee? But let's face it, if you have something that's inflamed, why wouldn't you consider applying it perfectly? So it's an off-label application, so he gets topical diclofenic, which acts not only for therapeutic purposes to treat his headaches, but it also has confirmatory diagnostic ability, doesn't it? If he's putting it on and it makes it better, guess why? He just confirmed the diagnosis, and it's a non-invasive procedure. So then, when he comes back for a follow-up two weeks later, all of his orthopedic maneuvers and everything that was positive on his exam are now normal. And you ask the patient, how are you feeling? And what do you think the patient says? I don't notice anything different. Well, there's a reason for that. We talk about, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow in the pain mechanism session. If you have this problem for a long time, you get neuroplastic changes that occur. Central sensitization sets in. So even though you've removed the insult, the patient hasn't caught up to the fact that it's actually doing better yet. But then when we start talking to him, you realize you would go home from work every day and go to bed. You just told me that you're out mowing your lawn, gardening, and playing with your kids. Did you forget about doing that? He said, oh, yeah, I guess I did, didn't I? So sometimes they have to be brought to their attention. So the next two times we saw him, we're doing nothing but putting our hands on our shoulders, applying cognitive behavioral therapy, biopsychosocial stuff, and saying, look, you're doing better, motivational stuff. We're going to continue to wean you off your medications. Two visits later, we never saw him again. Workers' comp was happy. We closed the case. So I would have known if he still was complaining because workers' comp would have called me back and yelled and screamed. So this is what taking a step backwards, looking at the whole picture and trying putting the pieces together can do. 
So let's talk about something as simple and basic as the fact that while providing you know, valuable information regarding an anatomical or presence of pathology, it does nothing to tell you whether or not that pathology is clinically significant. And here's the kicker. Let's say we did the epidural on that patient and for some reason his symptoms went away. Would the cervical degenerative disc disease still been there? Well, of course it would be. So what we would have treated would have been something that was an inflammatory process because we injected a steroid so that we would have been treating a radiculitis. We talk about this in the imaging study session tomorrow. How many of you have ever seen the term radiculitis on an MRI report? I've never done it, and I've seen 20,000 MRIs in my life, easy, and I've never seen it as a term. Yet, if we provide the patient with an NSAID or a steroid, injectable or oral, what are we treating? An inflammatory process. Well, there's a little bit of a disconnect there, too, isn't there? The disconnect even gets worse. So think about this. I was giving the imaging study session at Pain Week probably about three or four years ago, and this guy comes up to me at the end of the session and introduces himself as the chief of radiology for a hospital system in, like, Tennessee. So I'm figuring, ooh, I probably insulted him the wrong way, and I'm getting ready for this one. And he just says, I just wanted to shake your hand. I can't believe you ident that you called this little oversight to my attention. And by the way, some of the other imaging studies that you were using in your session were technically deficient. And I said, well, yeah, I know that, but why do you say they are? And he said the same thing I knew, which is that the slices weren't parallel to the disc space. They sort of were off at crazy angles. So here's the kicker. It's gotten better because you have some people like me that are opening our big mouths, but think of dermatomes for a second. So the brachial plexus is C5 through T1, right? So dermatome C5 is kind of your shoulder. C6 is like your thumb and first finger. Seven is your middle finger. C8 is your fourth and fifth. And T1 is the medial forearm. Everybody agree? Where are all the muscles for grip located in your hand, in your arm? Where do they come from? Medial side of your forearm? What's that innervated by? On our nerve, C8-T1, from the medial cord, all right? How about all the intrinsic muscles of the hand? What are they innervated by? C8-T1 nerve root, ulnar for most of them, except for the first dorsal interossei and the flexor pollicis brevis, which are median nerve, but still C8-T1. So if you have numbness and tingling that follows the fourth and fifth digits, decreased grip strength, what can you assume that is more likely involving the level of the pathology for your patient? You're going to say it's likely involving ulnar nerve distribution, say T1, right? I can complicate that. What happens if the patient says, I have numbness and tingling in all my fingertips? What's that? Well, it could be you're crossing dermatomes, but it could also be more of a um, proprioceptive pain, not nociceptive, because of the motor innervation. So think A beta fibers instead of A delta and C. So it is plausibly possible. But in the very least, you know that there's a possibility for some other problem at C8-T1, medial cord. Do you know that only 10 to 15% of the cervical MRIs go to the base of the body of T2 to include the T1 nerve root? And maybe 50% of the MRIs include C8? So that means even though the MRI could be deficient for identifying the problem, at least 50 plus percent of the time, you're not even looking at where the pathology might be located. Talk about a little bit of a disconnect. So from this point forward, everybody in the room, if you ever order a cervical MRI for the purposes of ruling out some kind of pathology creating neck pain, you have to write, especially upper extremity pain, you have to write, please include axial imaging through T2 to include the C8 or T1 nerve roots. 
Because if you don't do it, it's not going to be done. At the, end of the, at the end of the session, Jack. At the end of the session, Jack. <laughs> so if you have any questions, please just hold them to the end. All right? So there's Clinical Pearl. Please put right on the order. Please include imaging to include C8 and T1 nerve roots, because if you don't, it won't occur. So you might as well at least look in the right place. So we started to talk about this whole idea of facet joints and facet joint pain. Let's talk about that. I'll have to sort of walk down to this side of the room, too, so I can show the wealth. So if you inflame a facet joint, the nerve root and the sheath of the nerve root comes out. The IVF is very close to that facet joint. Can everybody see that? It's really, really close. So if the facet capsule becomes irritated, you're going to have leaking out of inflammatory cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha. That is going to then inflame potentially the nerve root. That's causing that sort of referred pain, but that causes a radiculitis. So let's talk about this for a second. If you did a medial branch block, for those of you that are an interventionalist, that would block the medial recurrent branch of the nerve that innervates the multifidus muscle in the facet joint, but that would do nothing for the radiculitis. On the other hand, if you injected the facet capsule and did an intraarticular injection, it is highly likely that a little bit of that steroid is going to leak out of the facet capsule as well, so you'll also get a partial nerve block. And in some cases where we've had a patient with a moderate to severe radicular component, confirmed by electrodiagnostic study or even clinical examination, we might do an epidural in conjunction with an intraarticular facet block. Because if you think about the patient for a second, if the patient has two components contributing to their problem, a facet joint and a nerve root that's inflamed, if you're doing the classic routine of a diagnosis by a series of spinal injections one at a time, can you overshoot the pathology? And the answer is yes, because the patient's expectations are that they're going to get 100% better by every treatment that you do. And if, even if they're a little bit better after one procedure because they're, in their mind it's failed, what do they tell you? It didn't work. So you steamroll right over it. So in those cases, what we are doing is we are trading the diagnostic specificity of a block for an outcome, which I'll take that all day long. So, and can you get those approved? Yes, that's where documentation and rationale comes in. I've submitted documentation thousands of times to get combined procedures like that approved. And as long as you have a rational explanation for it, it's amazing what you can get approved. So, basically, you have to look at the patient as possibly being a more complete problem, and you can't just assume that all facet pathologies are created equally because there might be some other contributing components that can cause a ridiculous type pathology. So, Let's talk about this case. So here's another common patient that you're going to see in your office. So this is a patient that has a right C6 nerve root compression. So we'll talk about it in the, when we do imaging studies tomorrow, how to reinterpret an MRI. But just to do the quick little thing right now is when you're looking at axial images, they're kind of inversed. So whatever's on the left on the image is actually the patient's right. So this is nerve root compression of the C6 nerve roots, which, which exits between C5 and 6 in this case, causing compression of the nerve root as it exits the IVF. So have any of you ever had a situation where you turned your head real quick to one side and you felt everything lock up all of a sudden and you get like that shock-like sensation? I've seen a lot of people nodding their heads, right? So what happened when you did that is your body said, oop, you irritated a nerve and I don't want you to be able to hurt, so I'm going to put everything and lock it up. It's a protection mechanism. When you have a patient who has an actual compression of her nerve root, how do you think the patient's going to present? I heard a couple of little whispers in the back. They're going to have an antalgic posturing, aren't they? So what's the couple of things they're going to do? 
Well, they're going to bend their head forward, aren't they? Because that's going to help open up the IVF a little bit and give you some more room. And it also might pull the disc herniation in a little bit. So those patients are generally going to be sort of leaning a little bit forward, leaning away from that disc pathology because they're trying to open up that IVF and put less compression on the nerve root. Does that make sense? So if the patient is like me and having a conversation to you and they're very animated, they're moving their arms and their head around and their neck around while they're talking to you, is there likely a nerve root compression that's symptomatic? I don't know. I might argue that one, right? So this patient comes in, though, and they're going to have that antalgic posturing. When you go to palpate that area at C5, C6, where the nerve root comes out, guess what you're going to feel? It's going to feel like a what? A rock. Because the body says, don't move at that level, so you're going to feel multifidus spasms guarding that level, too. You also might see pain that radiates along a particular level because here's another thing you can do to have some fun. So everybody hold their arm out. Just make sure not to smack the person next to you. <laughs> if you push up from your triceps, uh, from your, your triceps into your biceps, into your humerus, and hold it there while you lower your arm and then keep the pressure on your arm for a few seconds, who feels a little tingling in their thumb? A lot of people are saying none, right? The longer you hold it, that tingling is going to start radiating its way up your arm, too. So a proximal compression is going to create a distal axonal loss. So what are the symptoms with a C6 nerve root compression that you're going to experience with the patient? Possibly some weakness following C6. What does C6 do? Well, that's muscles involved in with extension of the wrist and fingers, but it's also sensation to the fingers, right? So in the very least, you're going to probably have some numbness tingling in the thumb and forefinger and maybe some weakness on extension of the wrist. But that's what we expect. So if we see a lesion like that and the patient's examination coincides with that, can we assume that the imaging study in this case is clinically significant? Yes, right? Make sense? So this is a patient where we're going to consider maybe, okay, that's the patient that we maybe need a surgical decompression or, or at least a surgical consult, right? If we send that patient for physical therapy and they're going to do exercise and rehab, what that's going to do? Probably not help. You're going to want to manipulate that patient? Probably not. You know, and anything that you do to mitigate the patient's pain, let's say you put them on an opioid and you sort of a high dose of an opioid so they're perceiving less pain and a muscle relaxant, well, then you're also potentially mitigating their guarding mechanism. But if you mitigate their guarding mechanism, what does that do to the patient? Subjects them to further injury as well. So there's always a you know, potential bad outcome for handling that the wrong way. But if all the pieces go together, okay, we're going with that. Let's contrast that to this guy. So this guy comes in, and this was more of an informal consult than an actual exam. So this would be the equivalent of more of our telemedicine-type scenario, if you would like, but I was actually there face-to-face because -face, this is more of a friend, right? So if you look at his imaging study, what do you see? Well, he was diagnosed with the multiple levels of disc pathology, in particular if this is C2, C3, C4, C5, C6, and C6, C7. So C5, C6, C6, C7 were the worst, C5, C6 being the worst. So you can see that you have this sort of disc osteophyte complex causing a nice little canal stenosis there. If you look at the MRI, there's a little foraminal stenosis here on the right side, which, on the left side, which is the patient's right, on C5, C6. On the right side, which is the patient's left for C6, C7. Okay? So if this was a symptomatic disc pathology at C6, C7, what would we have expected with that patient? Would they have had some kind of intelligent posturing? Possibly. 
Would they have had radiation and pain that followed that C6 distribution? Possibly. Well, I'm having this conversation with the patient, and he's sitting there animated, moving his head and talking. What's the likelihood that those are necess necessitating, him get the word out, a surgical decompression? He was scheduled for a multi-level fusion. It's going to radically change his life. So I said, well, w wait a second, hold on. You're not behaving like you should if this was a true premise. Do you mind if I put my hands on your neck? So I did. And when I put my hands on his neck, I felt something completely different. So it turns out that after I put my hands on his neck and said, I think you've got something else going on, they agreed to do a CT scan. So if you haven't ordered a 3D CT yet, I love these things. Because it's like ordering a three-dimensional model of your patient that you can rotate around and access so that you can actually see much easier presentation what you think might be causing the problem. So if we look at this 3D CT, what stands out to you as being not so cool? I can point to it if you'd like. Here's C, there's C1, so this is C2, 3, 4, and 4, 5. Can you see the facet changes there for the set inflammation? They kind of jump out at you, don't they? Guess what you feel when you palpate his neck? Irritation of those facet joints. That's above the level of the cervical, the cervical disc pathologies. But his clinical presentation is more like a facet-mediated pain at those levels rather than nerve root compression at the disc levels. So what do you think my recommendation was? Inject those puffs, intra-articular injections, one on each side. Hit them both. Let's just say he canceled his surgery. He still hasn't had surgery today. He's doing pretty good. Does he have good or bad days? Yeah, but this is an Achilles heel. So if you do something, you can treat it. So pay close attention to how the imaging studies correlate with the patient because that's where you get a lot more information. You can never go by imaging study alone. I don't know if the animation will work. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Oh, there you go. See, it gives you the ability to rotate around from the whole entire angle. So if you ever have, get the opportunity to order a CT scan for like a neck or a back, do it because you order 3D with 3D rendering, the insurance company usually denies it but then they usually write off the balance so your patient gets a free 3D rendering and it's no additional exposure to the patient because it's all software-based. We use CT a lot when it comes to that because a lot of the patients that I've seen are post-op neck and back pain patient and then the hardware kind of gets in the way because it sort of causes these bright radiating anomalies on MRI which make it harder to see. So sometimes you get more information out of the CT scan anyway on those post-op patients. But this is sort of becoming a deciding de facto. So, one of the first things I did when I was still in school, actually, when I was going through the equivalency of my residency training or whatever, one of my projects was we wanted to validate this Upton and McComas hypothesis, which you guys just did when you were pressing on that nerve in your arm. So the whole idea is if you press on the nerve or have a proximal lesion, you are more likely to have potential compromise later on. So I got my start on post-op low back pain and post-op car carpal tunnel syndrome because we were patients that had CTSD compressions and yet they were still symptomatic. And then when you talk to the patient, you realize the pain went all the way up anyway, which is probably why they would do the ulnar nerve after the median didn't work and that wouldn't work either. So here's the cool thing here about the garden hose theory. And that basically explains the whole concept. What happens when you bend the hose? You decrease the water coming out, don't you? What happens when you bend it twice? Well, you can stop it. So here's the theoretical explanation for this. And these are not exact percentages, so don't quote me on this, but 
If normal is 100%, that's great. The body says, I have excess capacity for everything I need neurologically. So if you bend your wrist at 90 degrees, what are you doing to the median nerve at your wrist? Kinking it, right? So you may be decreasing the ability of that nerve to propagate an electrical impulse maybe by about 70%. And by the way, you can do a nerve conduction study on an asymptomatic normal nerve and actually see that conduction loss when you bend the wrist down. So it's measurable. But let's say the body said, I only need 60% to work. So if I bend my wrist at 90 degrees and I'm a normal patient, do my fingers tingle? No. But if I have a proximal compression, so the whole nerve is working at about 70%, it's kind of above my sort of comfort level for the capacity, right? So I might not be symptomatic. But now when I bend my wrist, it drops it down to 50, and I start feeling tingling in my hand. So the question is, is the problem at the wrist or is the problem higher up? The problem's higher up. And what you see, if you do a nerve conduction study on that patient, you would find that if you look at nerve conduction velocity across the wrist alone, it's slowed. But if you do what's called an inching technique, so you look at that nerve's ability to propagate a signal all the way up the arm, you would find that it's progressively slowed all the way up to the shoulder. And in a severe compression, it's more of a logarithmic approach there for that line. It drops off really fast. So in a sense, the nerve conduction study becomes a false positive because it didn't take into consideration the presence of a proximal lesion. So a, pre, a post-ganglionic compression is going to show up as a slowed nerve conduction velocity with an axonal loss distally. And it predisposes the nerve to further injury because it takes away its capacity. There are thousands of literature articles that support this, yet it seems to be ignored. Well, that's problematic because that explains a lot for why we see patients that, let's say, have a problem in the neck that's causing, or a problem in the shoulder that's causing a problem in the hand. If you had a median nerve entrapment at the wrist alone, is it possible for the pain to radiate proximally? I saw a couple of heads say yes, a couple of heads say no. Pathologically, neurophysiologically, the answer is no, because the axon would work normally up to the point of compression so that anything distal to the compression would be positive, but you're not going to get pain that radiates proximal. But yet the textbooks for carpal tunnel syndrome describe pain radiating proximal all the time as a symptom, and that's just wrong, because there's no physiologic explanation for that. So that means if you have a patient that has a problem in their hand, can you limit the, the evaluation to the patient's hand? The answer is uh, no. So I was at a car show a couple of weeks ago, the cars and coffee thing, I guess. So one of the guys in our car club was there, and he was wearing a, a splint on his hand, so I always have to ask. So he had a trigger finger. He said he had like a combination of, he weren't sure if it was Duptrin's contracture or a trigger finger. So they did a pulley release, and he's sitting there with a brace, and his fingers were still bent. So I, you know, I said, do you mind if I just press over here? Well, I can hit that one spot where you can hit the muscle in the forearm, and I just caused pain that kind of went through the ceiling. Not to mention I can feel the trigger point in his forearm. Well, if the nerve tells the muscle to contract, isn't the muscle going to contract? It would have been a really good idea for the hand surgeon to examine him to find out that he's actually got a problem higher up the line. So I didn't want to disparage the, nerve, the, uh, the orthopedic surgeon anyway. I said, you know, a lot of times these problems can sort of happen together. So if it still has that contraction in your hand and the pain in your elbow, which he says is unrelated, let me know afterwards, and we'll see if we can get that addressed for you, too, because you're stuck having to play nice with others. 
but you want to smack them for really looking at the patient with blinders on, only looking at here, figuring that you're examining a hand alone, forgetting the fact it's connected to the rest of the body. So you have to examine the whole patient just in case. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen patients that refer for one thing that turned out to have something else. And when that problem is something major, like when you get the patient that's being treated for back pain and you find out they have a dissecting abdominal aneurysm, that's a problem. So you really have to examine the whole patient. So shoulders are another issue. Sort of a pet peeve of mine, too, because the imaging study thing works for this as well. So what this basically author did, and this was Hiroshi, so they basically took an entire village and did rotator and did MRIs of the shoulders, bilateral MRIs of the shoulders, and it was like from ages 2 to 80. So everyone in the village got an MRI. We can't do that in this, in this country, so I, I'm assuming I know what country that is, but I'm not quite sure. What they found was that the prevalence of asymptomatic tears was greater than the prevalence of symptomatic tears. Well, that's rather intriguing because they outnumbered it by two to one across the whole board. But then they started talking about the fact that over 60, you have to look at the prevalence of rotator cuff tears in a normal population. The numbers are really, really strong. I had a great one a couple, uh, about a couple months ago, which is hysterically funny too. So the patient has right-sided shoulder pain. Right. They go to this, the orthopedic surgeon who orders an MRI. He never examines the patient, just orders an MRI. The transcription error said left shoulder. So they did a left shoulder MRI. The left shoulder MRI identified a rotator cuff tear. Great. So the, they, they tried treating it with a, supposedly an injection into the right. <laughs> it didn't really help. So I was giving him a second opinion on it, and I said, which shoulder is your problem with? <laughs> it turns out they ended up having to get an MRI of the right shoulder. Well, the symptomatic side turned out to be normal, and the asymptomatic side is the side that showed the, the rotator cuff tear. What's that story about? Well, he had a problem in the shoulder, but it wasn't a rotator cuff. But just like looking at cervical disc herniations, everybody seems to be going after rotator cuff tears. Well, you know, there's a 10-minute examination that you can download or review on YouTube from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons as well as, I think, the American Academy of Family Practice Physician. One is even better. So with a little 3, 5, 10-minute exam, instead of sending the patient from north to the orthopedic surgeon for a rotator cuff, who's going to do a rotator cuff tear, you can identify all of the major things that you are likely to see for a shoulder pathology. So you're sending the patient and saying, wait, I think I have like a supraspinatus tendonitis. Because if you plant the thought, guess what happens? The patient has a higher likelihood of getting the right treatment. Because if you assume that somebody else is going to be examining that patient just because they're a specialist, don't. Because I will tell you, being in the workers' comp arena and doing records review for years as well, I have stacks of medical records that are inch thick for like a back pain patient, which might have included multiple surgical procedures, where not a single physician this patient ever saw did an examination of their back. Uh, there was a lecture, if you listen to the, the, the lecture from Dr. Zakharoff earlier, where they were talking about how all medical records seem to look alike now because of EMRs. Well, that's true. Well, that the problem is that no one's paying attention to any of the information because you're expecting it to all look alike. So I think it's helping us let our guard down, which is another little bit of a problem. 
Um, so uh, basically, Siebert did the same thing. He wanted to look at the presence or the prevalence of rotator cuff tears as we get older. And what do you think? They are more prevalent as you get older. So just because you have rotator cuff tears, you know what? Age-related, it's a normal factor. Well, if you have two-thirds of the time, you're likely to have a rotator cuff tear when you're asymptomatic. Who says that surgical intervention has to be your first solution anyway? Because your goal would be to make sure that we have an asymptomatic rotator cuff tear. So there are two books I like if you're into primary care with respect to patient engagement. My two favorite books to have on the shelf are Waldman's Common and Uncommon Pain Syndromes. And I think they've got later versions now, so they're not even 2012. I think there's a 2017 or 18 version. Well, if you look at, there's, these are the common and uncommon conditions that Waldman describes can affect the shoulders. And this will pretty much cover everything. And by the way, the scapulocostal syndrome is the same thing we call a rib arthropathy. And these books are kind of cool because they have little clinical examination findings of you know, what the clinical pearls are for each, both for diagnosis and treatment. And just looking at the symptomatic presentation alone, when the patient's complaining of their pain will help you determine which it is and which you would like to examine and rule out. And you can do this on your own in a few minutes. And if you do it, the patient's more likely to get the treatment that they need. Which brings me to the next patient. So this is a 21-year-old college student, and you are going to love this one. So what time do I have? Let's see. I started at 4.40, so I get to go almost to about now, right? <laughs> I'm running out of time. So a 21-year-old college student complaining of shoulder pain. So the primary care doc sends him to the orthopedic surgeon. What do you think the orthopedic surgeon does? Or just an MRI of the shoulder, which comes back negative. So he says, maybe it's coming from your neck. So he orders a cervical MRI. That comes back negative. So he orders an EMG. The EMG comes back and says carpal tunnel syndrome. Well, that's kind of interesting. So they send the patient for physical therapy for the wrist. And he's wearing a cock splint. So he comes to my office, and I'm asking him about his pain. And he tells me about his shoulder pain. So I said, OK, tell me about your wrist. You know, tell me about the hand. He says, well, I have carpal tunnel syndrome. I said, I got that, but what are your symptoms? He said, I have carpal tunnel syndrome. Okay? I love teaching moments. I engage my patients all the time. I use education with respect to patients all the time because I have to. So I open up Waldman's textbook, show him the picture of carpal tunnel syndrome with the description of the symptoms. He says, I don't have that. I said, well, that's the point I'm trying to make. He says, well, then why am I wearing this splint? How come I had to go for physical therapy? Well, that doesn't, I don't know. So what he had was a cookie-cutter EMG, and it wasn't even performed that well. But on a cookie-cutter EMG, you can overshoot the pathology anyway because the whole idea for those of you who do EMGs is you have to examine the patient, tailor the study to the patient so that you are more likely to get a pathology. I mean, I can tell you a patient near dear to my heart that has an avulse spinal accessory nerve. So if you go to stick the needle in the upper trapezius muscle, you get ephaptic changes, which is a, a sign of long-term chronic denervation. It is the most abnormal EMG finding you have ever seen in your entire life. But if he had this, this cookie-cutter study, he would have what? A normal EMG. Well, that's problematic. So OK, I had a teaching moment with Waldman's textbook. So I already knew what I thought was the problem. So I flipped to the page of a suprascapular nerve entrapment. And I said, this is what I think you have. Here's what we're going to do to evaluate it. I did a very specialized study where we do a needle exam into the supra and infraspinatus. 
and then I can use an evoked potential to test the suprascapular nerve above and below the bifurcation. So I was able to come back and say, you have a suprascapular nerve entrapment distal to the bifurcation only affecting the, um, the um, uh, well, what do you call it? I'm having a mind melt. In the <laughs> the uh, supraspinatus. Well, right in the book, Waldman's got a little Canuck or Pearl stick needle here. I sent the kid back to his primary care doc with a, a, a Sharpie mark on his shoulder and Waldman's text saying stick needle here. And then I said, stop wearing your backpack because it also showed a kid wearing a backpack because the backpack that he was wearing for school was rubbing on the nerve. But look at what happened with respect to treatment. And because no good deed goes un, you know, un, unrewarded, I sent my information to the insurance company and my records include pictures explaining how I came to my conclusion. I made a medical decision-making process that developed a specific treatment, got it out from everything worked. They denied my service because they said I didn't do a routine EMG. You gotta love it, right? So, and these are real stories. So basically, you have to be careful with EMGs because first of all, you can't tell who did them. But, and here's another little concept. You have to tailor the study to the patient, but if your symptoms are preganglionic, well, a preganglionic sensory radiculopathy can't be identified by an EMG anyway. So you can have a patient that has a profound sensory radiculopathy that you localize the right level to, but the EMG can still overshoot it. So that can also be problematic. So I'll close it out really quick if you've got a few more minutes with this last study. And this one is kind of an important one too because it exemplifies a couple different things. So here's a guy who was in a car accident. It was iatrogenic because a physician was driving the car at the time. He was a car salesman test driving a car and he wrecked it on, against a tree. So the patient ended up with a shock-like pain at the base of his head. He was like locked in one position and the slightest little movement would cause knife-like shooting pain all the way down to his fourth and fifth digits. So what are we thinking? They did the MRI in the ER which identified degenerative disc disease C3, C4, C4, C5. So he had an epidural at C3, C4, C4, C5 that really didn't help. Here's the cervical MRI, which actually showed going down to include the C7 nerve root, uh, C8 nerve root, but they didn't get T1. I wanted to make that distinction, so they overlooked that. So I'm thinking, I've seen this before, because if we've seen it before, we recognize it. Vertebral, uh, a vertebral body or a, or a pedicle fracture right near the nerve root will cause that, because doesn't a fracture get really painful with the slightest little movement thanks to the periastomal bone? And then if that fracture is real close to the nerve root, what's it going to cause? Radiculitis. So I wanted to get a CT scan. And the insurance company said, no, sorry. But we'll do a bone scan. Oh, here we go. So they did a bone scan. The bone scan came up as inconclusive. Why was that? Because the guy's head was stuck forward. He couldn't tilt it back. So because he was uncomfortable lying with his head back on the table, they propped pillows on the table to hold his shoulders and head up. But if you take the patient off the imaging device, what did you just do to the study? invalidated it. So the bone scan came back with inconclusive for the cervical thoracic area, but you have arthritis in your right ankle. Um, so look, basically you can't make this stuff up. We're kind of out of time, so I have to say goodbye. Um, we got a few more things to talk about, but at least actually we made it through the end. So our take home message is, look, you can't go by imaging studies alone. If you're going to do one thing, don't read the imaging study, read the patient. Look at the patient as a whole. Think about what makes up some of these underlying pathologies that we see. And all of a sudden, all the pieces start getting put together. And you know, we ourselves have to take responsibility for making sure the patients get what they need. Because the reality is, if you're going to expect somebody else to do it, it's not going to happen.
So with that, I thank you for kind of sitting the whole session. Hope to see you again tomorrow. Um, thank you for coming to Pain Week. And if you have any